Hey everyone, it's question show time. Your questions, my answers. As always, wherever you are across my channel, if a question pops into your brain, just write it down. I will gather them up and I will answer them here. Now, as always, I'm recording this show live. Uh, this time I'm on Monday, May 31st, 2021. So uh, if some of the things that happen in space aren't reflected in the show that I'm doing, it's because I didn't know I don't have a time machine, I can't see into the future, I just make bad estimates. But if you want to join us live for the show, remember, we do this every Monday, except for Canadian holidays um, at 5pm Pacific time uh, on my YouTube channel. All right, let's get into the questions. JC. Hey, Fraser, love your work. Thank you. I'm wondering what happens if a micro black hole passes through the Earth's core? Why would it not swallow the core and grow? Or if the density is the problem, I'm guessing one could pass through a neutron star and feed itself to a considerable size. Have we seen evidence for this? Thank you again for your amazing content. First, I think that, you know, we have to sort of differentiate a few things first. So, so let's start with this idea of having a black hole at all. And the only way that we know naturally for black holes to form is via a supernova. And so you need to have a star with many times the mass of the sun, like more than 10, explode as a supernova, it then you know, all the material implodes down into the core, and it bounces off and creates this black hole and you end up with a black hole that is several times the mass of the sun. And so if a black hole forming the way that we know they can pass through the Earth, I mean, really, it would be the most dominant gravitational thing in the neighborhood as it passed through the solar system, it would be warping the orbits of all the planet, it would kick the sun, you know, into a different configuration, it would throw out planets, it would throw planets into the sun, and it would eat planets. So having a black hole pass through the core of the Earth is sort of like having a truck pass through the core of a fly. I don't know. It's like, it's just like, it's not really for scale. Now, there is a theorized kind of black hole known as a primordial black hole. And so it's possible that there were over densities back at the beginning of the universe when you had these tiny little regions that were so dense, that little microscopic or various sizes of black holes, I mean, you could have ones that are microscopic, you have ones that are the mass of a house, the mass of the earth. And this is all still in theory, nobody knows for sure that these things exist. But let's say let's just imagine that there is one of these primordial black holes, a very small one, say with one with the mass of a house. So it's not enough to really disrupt the gravity of the Earth, that for some reason, perfectly passes right into the Earth and heads down through the Earth. And so what would happen? Nothing. I mean, nothing. Because the gravity of a house is not that much. And when you have a black hole, it doesn't actually interact with the matter in any way. It's not like it's going to be bouncing, going to be slowed down, it's going to have its, its position change at all. So a black hole would be coming in at tens of 1000s of kilometers per hour, it would pass through the earth, it would burrow a tiny little hole in the earth, it would add a tiny little bit of mass to itself, it would pop out the other side, and it would just keep going through space, never to return. And so if something like that happened, we would never know. 
Now, I'm sure you heard this, this disturbing theory that maybe when they first turn on the Large Hadron Collider, there would be this black hole that would be generated in the Large Hadron Collider, and it would fall into the Earth, and then it would consume the Earth from within. And that would be a problem. Because in this case, the black hole is trapped inside the Earth. I mean, think about it, right? When you drop something into the Earth, it can't get out of the earth again, the most it can do it's going to fall all the way down through the earth, reach the other side of the earth. And then it'll be, you know, it's going to speed up, speed up, go down to the core, then pass through slow down, slow down, slow down, get right to the just like right to the surface, like literally the same height as where it fell out of the Large Hadron Collider in in Europe, I don't know what's in the the antip antipode of of Europe, and then it would fall back through the earth and it would be, you know, eating particles as it went, and then it would do it again, and do it again, and do it again. And so it would end up gobbling up the entire Earth from within now it would take a long time. And eventually you get this point where the Earth, the interior of the Earth was just like um, Swiss cheese, and then the whole thing would just kind of crumble in on itself into this new black hole. And now the Earth would be replaced with a black hole with the mass of the Earth orbiting around the sun forever. So if we ever do form a black hole with one of our science experiments, we're just sort of it's only gonna be a problem for us. Joe Ravel, when will James Webb become fully operational? So James Webb is due to launch on October 31st, 2021. Although it looks like there might be a delay because there's some issues with the uh, Ariane five rocket there's two previous missions had problems with the deployment of the fairings of their missions. And that's not surprisingly, made uh, NASA a little freaked out. And so they're having another look at it. And so while James Webb itself is done, it's finished, it's been folded up for the last time, and it's ready to make the journey down to the launch site, they might want to take a little more time just to make sure that rocket is working perfectly. Once it does launch, it'll take not long a couple of days to get out to its final home in the L2 Lagrange point. And then it's going to take about a month to unfurl itself to fold out that sun shield and to fold out all of its mirrors and all the other parts of it. And so it'll probably not be delivering first light for about a month, a bit over a month after it launches. So we all have to be very patient. But it'll launch. It's gonna work Two star. What happens if James Webb doesn't work? Not to the telescope, but what's plan B? Uh, if James Webb doesn't work, there is no plan B. James Webb cost all the money, close to $10 billion. It's a one off, they will never make another one. And if for some reason, any one of its hundreds of actuators fail to deploy, if there's a problem with the upper stage of the rocket, and it's pushed into the wrong orbit, or if it crashes into the atmosphere, think of all the ways that missions can go wrong. And any one of those things could happen to James Webb, and it would be the end for James Webb. But I can also imagine a bunch of in between situations where say, you get uh, the upper stage doesn't fire as long as it's supposed to. And so James Webb doesn't get put into its its correct L2 Lagrange transfer orbit. Well, maybe it's on a different orbit now that maybe NASA engineers could work with it. Or maybe not all the actuators open up. And so the sun shield isn't fully deployed and part of the telescope is is overheating. Uh, NASA would try to figure out some way to work, you know, get as much science done as they could. 
And of course, the other possibility, you know, because James Webb is docked to the top of a Ariane second stage rocket, it's a very standard shape clamp. And so in theory, a future starship or Orion capsule or crew dragon could fly to James Webb out at L2 dock with this docking port, it's got refueling ports built in, and they could try to fix or assemble or deal with whatever is wrong. So but that's the kind of thing you, you, know, you cross that bridge when you come to it. So let's just assume that there's not going to be any problem. James Webb is going to fly, it's going to reach its uh, L2 point, it's going to deploy nicely, and it's going to go to work exploring the universe. And if there are any problems, then hopefully, NASA and its partners will be able to work with the ingenuity that they show every time missions go wrong, to try to save it. And then sometimes, as we saw with eventually Kepler, as we saw with insight not being able to deploy its probe, sometimes you just can't fix the problems, and you have to call the mission a failure. And if that happens with James Webb, they won't build another. Uh, the the needs have moved on the communities moved on the designs are complete. Uh, it's just not worth it financially to go and just build a brand new one from scratch. So let's hope for a success. Behind Duplices, can Oort clouds overlap? If two stars are closer to each other, can their Oort clouds interfere and overlap? Sure. Um, you know, the Oort cloud of the sun of the solar system is surprisingly big. Uh, our Oort cloud goes out about 50,000 astronomical units, which is about two light years, which is about halfway of the distance to the nearest star to say Proxima Centauri. And so you can imagine if all star systems do have Oort clouds, these are of course, the source of the long period comets, this giant cloud of ice that surrounds the solar system. If every single star system has these, then you can kind of imagine the Oort clouds overlapping all the time. And probably nothing ever happens. I mean, they're a distance when you imagine the volume of a sphere that goes out to two light years, and the number of objects, the distance between those objects is just going to be enormous. So the issue is, when, you know, it's not a, really a problem of the Oort clouds interfering with each other and overlapping, it's when you get a star going through the Oort cloud. And this happens all the time too. Um, we're probably you know, someone did the math that we're going to get a star that's going to come within something like 240 light days, maybe it's 24 light days, anyway, going to come within dozens of light days of the Earth uh, over the next few million years. And so we get close flybys of other stars every few million years. So you can imagine a star passes right through the Oort cloud and disrupts it with its gravity, flinging comets out, stealing comets and throwing comets inward. And it's thought that uh, these close flybys of other star systems might be one of the reasons why we have rises in extinction events, why we have various periods where it seems like there was more comets blasting into the inner solar system could be stars passing through our Oort cloud, and we pass through uh, other stars or clouds. So it's, uh, it's kind of inevitable, kind of weird to think about. Fugal creations. Do you think that a stable habitable world could exist around a two or three star system? This would be epic. Tatooine for the win. Yeah, absolutely. You could definitely have a habitable planet orbiting around a multi star system. So two stars, three stars, eight stars, no problem. 
Uh, all of these configurations are possible. Now you need to have sort of there's two ways that you can have habitable planets that don't get kicked out of a multi star system. If you've got like three stars that are very close to each other, or even two stars, and you've got planets that are trying to orbit very closely to those stars, the gravitational interactions between the stars and the planets are going to kick out the planets they are going to consume the planets. But there are configurations where the planets and the stars can be stable. So the one configuration is where you've got say one star, and it's got like it's like a little solar system going around it. And then really far away, say, 10 astronomical units, 20 astronomical units, you've got another star. And so the two stars are sort of orbiting around each other or one star is larger and the other ones orbiting around it. The other configuration that you can have is where you've got two stars that are orbiting around each other really closely. And then you've got the planetary system farther out, say, two to four times the distance between those stars. And if you've got that situation, then it can be stable. And then you can imagine various combinations. So you could have say, two stars in the center, with a bunch of planets going around it, and then another star orbiting way far away, as long as that's all stable, that's just fine. And that other star could have multiple planets orbiting around it. And then you could have two stars over here, and they're orbiting around each other, and they've all got planets and then two stars over here, and they've got planets around them. And that's all and they're orbiting around each other. And that's all stable. And then you could have, a, you know, more, as long as you just sort of continue that way of nesting stars and planets around each other so that everything is stable. Uh, in most situations, you're going to get planets getting kicked out, but definitely there are stable configurations that could be possible. So Tatooine is absolutely, uh, you know, there are definitely star systems out there in the Milky Way, where you could be on a planet with liquid water and be looking at multiple stars in the sky, multiple suns. R. Khan Wu. Does China consider colonizing Mars a priority? We don't know what China's long term plans are for spaceflight beyond more faster, better technology. I mean, where we are today in 2021, China now has sent many missions to the moon landers, rovers, they've done a sample return mission from the moon. Um, when you look at the logo of their lunar program, it's a little boot print in the moon. So clearly the plan for the moon is to have Chinese astronauts, Taikonauts go to the moon and walk around. Um, at the same time, now we know that the Jurong rover is down on Mars. So we've got a Chinese Martian rover. And of course, that'll probably lead into more rovers, sample return orbiters, etc. That seems like it's kind of inevitable that they're going to eventually make their way to sending humans to Mars. Will they colonize it though? Um, I don't know. I've been on the record in that I don't think anybody's going to want to colonize Mars for a long time, we're going to have science stations on Mars. And the outer space treaty allows various countries to build research stations uh, with various rules, but to actually like colonize and claim territory, no one's allowed by international treaty to claim any territory outside of the Earth. And so you actually can't own any part of Mars, the moon, whatever, you can build a base. Um, but you have to let anyone who wants show up and stay in your base. So um, so the rules out in space right now, as part of the international community don't work in the way that a lot of people think they work and how they work here on Earth. So I think we all have to be shown that 
that there's some viable reason for human beings to want to live on Mars for long periods of time. And you know, I mentioned this in the past that I really liken this to human beings wanting to live in Antarctica for long periods of time, we go there for science. But all the various times that people have gone to Antarctica to try to live, they've failed, because it's awful. Bonus, penguins. Downsides, bitterly cold, nothing grows, nothing to do. So I think we're going to see something similar to that until somebody figures out a good reason to live on Mars. So I don't think anyone's thinking that far in advance. Robert Shaw, do you think that the United States will take China seriously at the beginning of this new space race? Or will we all be too busy with their own internal politics? I mean, I guess, you know, a lot of people are saying that now with China being so serious about space exploration, that this is going to usher in a new space race. And I don't think that we're really going to see a new space race. I think um, China is definitely going to put feet on the moon uh, within the next probably decade or so. I mean, they're really building up to it. They've got a space station at this point. Uh, they've got astronauts who've flown to space. They're demonstrating their ability to send missions to the moon, be able to return them safely back to Earth for sample return. They've built rovers, landers. They've been able to go to the far side of the moon. They've been able to send missions out to Mars and land, which is notoriously difficult. So it doesn't seem unreasonable that we're going to see a Chinese human mission to the moon at some point in the near future. But at the same time, and we see like Starship with SpaceX is planning to put a lander on the moon shortly, completely independently. Um, we know that there are other missions. Um, there's like conglomerates, I think like Northrop Grumman and a couple of other aerospace providers were planning to be able to do their own private mission to the moon. Uh, the European Space Agency is planning to build some kind of moon village. What's happening is that the technology is bringing the prices down, bringing the reliability up. And so it allows a lot more opportunity to be able to go to these places. It's kind of like, you know, back at the beginning of the 20th century, when the Wright brothers did their first flight, and then you can imagine you know, that first flight, and then a few other people figuring it out. And then people saying, like, do you think this is going to cause a new air race? While uh, will China be the first to fly people to another continent or whatever. And it's just like suddenly it stops being this one off thing that people are spending enormous amounts of money to accomplish and just turns into this thing that's more and more routine. And so I think we're, we're, you know, all of the really low hanging fruit, um, the first humans walked in, walking on the moon, the first human in space, they're done, they're gone, there's no real uh, advantage to uh, making that achievement if you can't sort of sustain it and, and move forward without some reason why you're doing this, you know, there's still one sweet prize remaining, which is that first human who walks on Mars and returns back, that will be really exciting. Uh, beyond that, I think we're sort of out of it being a race and now just being into just the future of humanity is utilizing space and like, who's winning the airplane race right now? Um, you know, there's just so many airplanes flying all the time into all these different places doing all these different jobs. That's what the future is going to look like. And so I don't really see this idea. I'm not really sold as going to be a race from this point forward. More questions in a second. But first, I'd like to thank our patrons, William Mason, Ken Nadziella, Daniel Morrison, 
1994 and the rest of our 843 patrons for their generous support. Want our videos early with no ads? Join our community at patreon.com universe today. Sierra Vortec. Do Guy think we are the actual dark matter and that the other 85% of the universe is filled with dark planets and dark suns and invisible people? Okay. Are we the dark matter and that the rest of the universe is dark planets and dark suns and invisible people? Um, I mean, you broke my brain. <laughs> All right. So... So I guess the question you're asking is, do we think that that the the rest of the universe, I mean, we know that, say, most of the matter in the universe is this dark matter, and we don't see it, and it's invisible, and it doesn't interact with regular matter in any way, shape, or form, except for gravity. But do we think that it's dark planets and dark suns and invisible people? No. Um, we think it is some kind of particle, a soup of particles that is... Uh, evenly distributed across regions in the universe. And it doesn't interact with itself. We know that it doesn't interact with itself. And so when you think about people, um, we interact with ourselves, we're, we're held together by our chemical bonds. Uh, we think about a planet, a planet is held together by the, you know, the gravity pulling it inward, as well as its various chemical bonds stopping it from collapsing into a black hole. Um, but for some reason, dark matter, whatever it is, doesn't interact with itself, it doesn't interact with us, and it also doesn't interact with itself. And so it wouldn't be able to form into planets and stars and people, it would just be particles passing around each other in the universe. That's our current understanding of what it is. But, uh, you know, we still are waiting for some kind of concrete idea of what dark matter is. All we know is that it's there. And, and we know a few of its characteristics, but we don't know what it is yet. But that's fine. I mean, that's how mysteries work. You start with a mystery, and then uh, you start to try and figure out what it is. If all the answers were provided to you, then life would be kind of boring. So uh, appreciate the mysteries and enjoy as we follow along as we try to figure out what they are. Helmet Bambuka. What do you expect from the soon to be released alien files? I'm not sure exactly what this is. I'm assuming this is like some kind of official release from the US government about the various uh, unidentified flying objects that they have been observing across the decades. Uh, what do I think is going to be in these news releases, these releases from the government? Uh, well, you know, I always sum up UFOs is somebody saw a thing. And so I'm expecting a bunch of examples of somebody, it could be a amazing camera system, a renowned expert, fighter pilots, radar operators, satellite antenna. So somebody saw imaged uh, radar signaled um, infrared scanned a thing. And it'll be like a, a blob, uh, a dot, a blur, um, something. And it's just going to be that every single thing that will come out of this information will be somebody saw a thing. Um, there will be no way for us to walk over to the thing to uh, in meet the inhabitants to be able to 
take a sample away to be able to take it to a lab and try and figure out what it is to be able to travel to its current location and orbit around it. Uh, none of those things will be possible. And so I think it will continue to be unidentified flying objects. And whether they turn out to be um, weather balloons, uh, mylar party balloons, uh, whether it's Venus, Jupiter seen with an un, um, unfocused lens, whether it actually turns out to be some kind of advanced um, propulsion system being used by other countries, that would be kind of amazing if they had some kind of evidence for that. Um, but yeah, no, I think we're gonna we're gonna have as little information as we did before, and we'll continue. Somebody saw a thing is is what you could just you could just boil down every single one of those things. And so if it's like somebody saw a thing, you know, when someone comes up to me and they're like, yeah, well, like, what do you think? What do you think about this news report about that thing that this person saw? And I'm just like, it's all, I can't do anything else. Like, can I get in the spaceship? Can I borrow their ray gun? Can I shake hands with the alien? Let me know when I can. And until then, it's a UFO. It's unidentified and it flies and it's an object. Yeah, I, I think it will be a um, it will be not interesting. Unfortunately, I know you want I know there's so many people that are waiting. This is it. This is the moment. This is the conclusive evidence that we have that that there are other nations on Earth who have advanced propulsion systems and they are routinely flying in our skies. This is the moment that we discover that Earth is part of a giant federation of planets and They've been sending scout craft to our planet all this time. This is the moment when disclosure happens. And it's not. We're just gonna, it's just gonna be as inconclusive as it's ever been. I'm sorry. Nathan Conklin, I'm an astronomy hobbyist interested in a deeper education. I've taken an intro to astronomy course at university, but I'd like to go deeper. Where should I go next? I'm looking for structure. It's a bit of a tricky one. It sort of depends on on what you already do. Like if you already have a background that integrates nicely with uh, space and astronomy, then then there's a lot of interesting options. Like if you're a computer scientist, and you do lots of work with gigantic databases, then, um, you know, there's probably lots of work that you could do to be able to um, interact with astronomers once you understand the basics. Uh, but if you have some no, some non science career existing career, something that's just like more tangential to that, and you just want to start learning more about astronomy, there's a couple of options. One is there's like online courses you can take that'll let you do a master's degree in astronomy. So if you already have some other degree in something unrelated, you can spend two years online, like Swinburne does it out of Australia, there's a few others I think out there, where you can get say a master's degree in astronomy, and then use that to connect over to something else. But if you're looking for a structure, I mean, it depends on whether or not you're looking for a job. Like if you want a job as an astronomer, then you have to go the traditional route, you have to get your bachelor's degree, you have to get your master's degree, you have to get a PhD, you have to produce papers, you have to work as an advisor, you have to apply for jobs at either research universities or other uh, places and hope to get a job and become an astronomer. And it's a 10 year path to get from when you start taking your classes to when you're ready to look for jobs. So you've got to be really serious. And there aren't a lot of jobs, you know, you're looking at um, 
200 people, 200 applicants for every one position that's available. So your chances of getting a job as an astronomer are very low. And so people always ask me like, I want to be an astronomer, you know, should I go to astronomy? I'm like, Oh, take computer science as well, because there's a million jobs for that. And if you can't get in as an astronomer, you can always get a job at, you know, Google, you always settle for a job at Google or Facebook or something like that. But if you just want to learn astronomy in a structured way, and if you're a self starter, then I would build my own astronomy curriculum. There's a guy and I forget his name and I apologize, but he uh, I'm pretty fascinated. He built his own computer science degree in about a year's work. And so he sort of built his own curriculum, you can now find websites that'll let you build a curriculum for creating essentially your own degree, um, all the textbooks that you need, a lot of the stuff's available online. Now there's tons of stuff out of MIT and, and other universities that you can go and and take their classes, see the professor um, lectures, do the problem sets really just simulate the whole process of getting a degree in astronomy, as long as you have the discipline to be able to do it for yourself. Um, so that's what I would do if if I were you is like, I would sit down, try to either find someone who's already done this, but synthesize an astronomy degree from a bunch of different places go, okay, you know, what is the typical list of courses that you have introductory to astronomy, the various math classes, the various physics classes that you have to do, build a curriculum, and then find online versions of those various courses, get the textbooks, get the problem sets, and make your way through that list. And my guess is, you know, if you're reasonably disciplined, you could go through a four year degree in a couple of years. Now, you won't get uh, recognized for the work that you do, you can't turn that into a, a career afterwards. But if you just want to have the knowledge, that's probably the way that I would go. The other thing that you can always do is you can get involved in various citizen science projects. So there are plenty of astronomers who would love to get your help with confirming exoplanets, you don't need a degree to be able to do this or what we do with CosmoQuest in identifying craters counting rocks on asteroids, things like that, uh, galaxy zoo. So there's lots of other citizen science groups that you can get involved in and not need to go through that whole degree process. So I would sort of figure out which way and you know, if you want to respond back, uh, we can, you know, I can give you some more guidance, but sort of that's the landscape that I think you're looking at. Arjone, shouldn't there be a few supermassive black holes around Sag A star since the Milky Way has been eating other galaxies? Would they be hard to find? Now, Sag A star that is the supermassive black hole at the heart of the Milky Way more than 4 million times the mass of the sun. Where are all the other supermassive black holes that the Milky Way gobbled up? Well, actually, there's some pretty recent research that came out in the last couple of days that new simulations say that the Milky Way probably formed fairly slowly over long periods of time by consuming lots of smaller galaxies and not like a really big collision with another galaxy. Like when we collide with Andromeda in whatever, 7 billion years from now, it's going to be big galaxies coming together, huge supermassive black holes coming together. It's going to be crazy. But uh, the kinds of interactions that the Milky Way has had in the past has been with dwarf galaxies, some might have had supermassive black holes in them or intermediate mass black holes. Uh, some maybe didn't, you know, we're still not sure exactly how many of them out there do. When supermassive black holes interact with each other, 
you know, they'll, they tend to find their way down to the center of the galaxy, and then will interact with each other, they'll orbit around each other and then merge. And so where did all of the other black holes go? They joined Sag A star, or they were kicked out of the galaxy and are now roaming around deep space. There are supermassive black holes without a galaxy, just roaming around the universe. Um, enjoy. Cryptoman 5000. Have we measured how fast gravity travels? We have measured how fast gravity travels. Um, in fact, that best measurement for the speed of gravity was actually just done uh, a couple of years ago with the Kilanova event that happened in 2017. So what happened was you had these two neutron stars that were orbiting around each other closer and closer together. And in the last few seconds, they buzzed up really close to each other, uh, released a mountain of gravitational waves and then collided and then it detonated in radiation. And so here on Earth, we detected the gravitational waves as the two neutron stars were starting to come together. And then exactly the moment when the two stars should have collided with each other, we saw the beginning of the flash of the radiation of the explosion. So the gravity waves came to us at the speed of gravity speed of light, the radiation from the explosion came to us from the speed of light. And so we knew sort of conclusively proved that gravity and light move at precisely the same speed. Richard Patton, do you think that our AI will explore deep space, including alien worlds and not us? No meat robots needed. Yeah, I mean, when you think about how fragile and short lived human beings are compared to robots that we build, robots theoretically can last for 1000s of years, uh, they can handle g forces that would liquefy human beings, they can handle high amounts of radiation and temperature, they can handle the vacuum of space, they don't need food. <laughs> they don't need water, like all they need is a little bit of energy and a way to radiate heat. It seems like the best thing to send to another world is a robot. And so yeah, absolutely, the vast majority of the exploration of the entire Milky Way, when we get to building our von Neumann probes, where we're building robotic spacecraft, and then those robotic spacecraft are building other robotic spacecraft, and we're sending them from world to world, and they're just going to be sending back what they find to us here on Earth. And it might be that after 1000s of years, 10s of 1000s of years of this exploration of the Milky Way, our robots find some really juicy planet some place that's just like a super Earth that happens to have the right temperature and pressure and has like really nice conditions on it, but it doesn't have hostile life forms on it, then we might maybe consider sending humans in some way to that, other, you know, maybe we'll send DNA factories that'll go to that world and try to terraform it and, and populate it. But you know, unless we come up with some kind of exotic propulsion system, stargates, warp drives, wormholes, until we can figure that out, we're going to be stuck to the solar system for the foreseeable future. If you want a single comprehensive resource for space news, you'll want to subscribe to my weekly email newsletter. Every Friday, I send out a magazine of space news with dozens of stories, pictures, brief highlights and links you can find out more. Go to universetoday.com newsletter to sign up. It's totally free.
And did you know that all of my videos are also available in handy audio podcast format so that you can have the latest episodes as well as special bonus material like interviews with me show up on your audio device, go to universe today.com slash audio or search for universe today on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks to all the moderators and a special thanks as always to Chad Weber and Nancy Graziano.